Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK, and today I am very pleased to welcome to the programme Peter Ford, who is a retired or technically retired uh, British diplomat who served as UK ambassador to Bahrain from 1999 until 2003 and then ambassador to Syria from 2003 until 2006. He has been very outspoken in his criticism of British foreign policy in recent years, especially that towards Syria, a country, of course, that he knows and understands extremely well. Peter Ford, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Thank you, uh, Julian, for the invitation. It's great of you to come on, great to have the opportunity to speak to you. As I became aware of your criticism of mainstream media journalism and, and news reporting a few years ago, and I have noticed how you've consistently, and I think bravely, dropped, as it were, truth bombs into many of your interviews that you've had are on TV and radio, and it's been quite refreshing, a breath of fresh air for somebody like me to, to hear that. Um, somebody with a distinguished diplomatic background to you know, articulate those truths, which should really be spoken by uh, journalists themselves. So it's great to be hearing that, and thank you for doing that. I recently noticed that you'd also been a speaker at the Media on Trial event in Leeds, where Vanessa Beely spoke, who we spoke to recently, um, and I was very interested in what you had to say there, so I'll be asking you about that as well. Um, before we get into all that kind of thing to do with the mainstream media, I'd like to ask a little bit about your background. As I said in the introduction, you twice UK ambassador to these various places. How did you have a career path such as that? Well, from a quite early age, uh, possibly <laughs> from watching the film Lawrence of Arabia, I became uh, passionate about the Middle East. And I thought that being a foreign office diplomat would be the best passport to that area. And, and so I took that to pass. I studied languages at university, took the civil service exam, and was lucky enough to get chosen for the foreign office. And uh, very soon after joining, volunteered to learn Arabic. Uh, the die was cast. Wow, Arabic. So you are a fluent Arabic speaker. Yes, I managed somehow to keep it up. I, I managed the other day to stumble through a, a radio interview in Arabic, and they told me it was very good. Wow. I have studied a little bit of languages myself, but I'm, I'm not a language person, so um, I'm in awe at anybody who can speak a language like that. Um, I understand from your Wikipedia page that when you retired, you became a representative to the, is it the Commissioner General of yes. UNRWA? Yeah. Could you tell us something about that organization? Yeah, that's the UN Relief and Works uh, Agency for Palestine Refugees. And their job is to basically look after the uh, millions of uh, Palestinian refugees uh, whose forebears go back to the events of 1947, the Nakba. And there are hundreds of thousands of them spread over several countries of the, the Middle East. And my job uh, for UNRWA was to raise funds uh, to help support these uh, Palestinian refugees with schooling, healthcare, uh, social support, housing. It was focused on raising money in the Gulf countries, in several of which I'd previously served with the Foreign Office. It was uh, horses for courses. And I'm glad to say I was very successful in raising literally hundreds of millions of dollars for this very good cause. Marvellous. Um, now, I'm going to ask you a question here about the British Syrian Society. I, I don't know anything about this. I wonder if you could tell us what that is. And also, as you know, this tends to come up in some of your media appearances, that it's associated with Bashar al-Assad's father-in-law. And this is, you know, taken as a black mark against you. Anyway, could you tell us something about the British Syrian Society? Surely, uh, the society has several hundred uh, members here in uh, the UK and, and in uh, Syria. It's been going uh, perhaps for 10, 12 years. That is, it predates the conflict. And um, it's basically a sort of gin pro-reform ginger group. Now, it's correct that the first uh, founding chairman of the group uh, is Dr. Fawaz Akhras, uh, who happens to be father-in-law of President Assad. 
Dr. Akras is a cardiologist uh, resident in London uh, who likes to do uh, good works and, and promote the cause of, of reform in Syria. Uh, is very strong on the um, anti-corruption drives that have taken place in Syria. And um, previous uh, boards of the society have traditionally included former British ambassadors to uh, Syria, hmm. in, including uh, Lord uh, An Andrew uh, Green, now a member of the, the House of Lords and, and back on, on the board of the British uh, Syrian Society. In the last few years, the society in this country has been quiescent. It has been impossible to mount uh, any events because of the cacophony of propaganda against the uh, society. It has, however, mounted reform-oriented events in Syria itself, and that's what it continues to do. But it is not a lobbying outfit as it has been portrayed. Uh, I feel sorry for anybody who has a mandate to try to lobby for the Syrian uh, government, uh, a thankless task if ever there was one and there's no money for it. Um, the society has in the past uh, arranged visits, um, information visits by MPs including worthies such as David Davis to go fact-finding to Syria. David Davis, incidentally, wrote a, a very interesting uh, note uh, on his uh, return, which you'll find on his website. But at the moment, as I say, the society is virtually uh, quiescent. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how that is... Oh, may I add, uh, yes, may yes, I add that we're, we're all volunteers. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. not, none of the, uh, the board receives a, a stipend. We, we, see, yes. we do it uh, for the, the love of it, for the love of Syria. Hmm. But it is interesting, isn't it, how that association with his father-in-law is often mentioned with respect to you, as if that somehow discredits you, and yet you're saying that has no weight to it whatsoever. Uh, exactly. This is typical. Um, one newspaper, one of the prominent broadsheet uh, newspapers, said uh, erroneously that I had a job with President Bashar al-Assad's uh, father-in-law. They were forced to retract by the Independent Press Standards Organization. It's not a job, um, it's simply a, a position. Uh, we meet about three times a year. If, if it was a job, I would be laughing particularly if it was paid, which it isn't, um, they were forced to re retract. But this is typical of the sneering mm. which goes on to anybody who questions the preferred narrative of the mainstream media about Syria. Yes, indeed. So just before we do, in fact, get on to talk more about the mainstream media, I wanted to ask you a little more about your position on Syria, just to establish for listeners who may not know you what your angle is on this country. When I spoke to Vanessa Bealey the other week, she said that uh, before the so-called civil war in Syria, and now she made it quite clear to us that it isn't really a civil war, but that's, you know, that's all part of the propaganda. Before the horrors, let's call them, uh, started several years ago, Syria was, she said, you know, quite a, a progressive country, relatively progressive and quite stable place in the Middle East. Do you echo that? What was your experience of Syria during your time as ambassador? Uh, yes, I, I do very much uh, echo that. I, I, I left in 2006, but I continued to visit Syria in my later job with the UN, which was only just down the road in Amman. I, I visited Damascus frequently before the outbreak of the conflict in 2011 and, and afterwards. And uh, it used to be probably the most progressive place in, in the Middle East. It wasn't uh, a paradise, a democratic paradise by any means, but it was taking steps uh, forward towards uh, economic and political uh, reform. We were beginning to see an opening up of the economy in particular, which had been state-dominated. But uh, Syria, including today, it has a government that looks after its people. It was providing uh, among the best health care to any country in, in the Middle East, uh, comparable, for example, to Cuba. 
And uh, to this day, the, the government is very uh, assiduous in looking after people. I, I, I came across a, a small example the other day. A group of um, refugees were returning from nearby Lebanon, uh, going back to the, the home country. And they were met, they said, by a welcoming committee and doctors with uh, vaccinations ready for the children. That is not the hallmark um, of a brutal dictator who wants to murder his people. Indeed. And yet, as you've just sort of indicated there, we have constantly been having this phrase come across our ears, which is that he's been killing his own people. I remember in one of the presentations you gave, you said that what's been essentially happening with Assad is that the accusations against him have been exaggerated which implies that he's certainly no saint, but that you know, the case against him has been inflated for the purposes of propaganda. Have I, have I read you right on that? Uh, yes. Um, it, it's hard to know where to start. So, so uh, copious has been the propaganda. But let's just start with the number of people uh, allegedly killed. This is commonly trotted out that Assad has killed nearly half a million of his own people. Lie. Uh, that figure includes victims on both sides of the conflict, and it includes uh, government soldiers as well as militants who, who have died. So the true figure of civilian victims of government attacks might be closer to 100,000. The statement is one quarter true, perhaps, and three quarters untrue. That's just a one example of the, um, the the factoids which are regularly trotted out about Syria. You know, a factoid has a, a little grain of uh, undeniable truth uh, in it, but it is uh, amplified, distorted to give a completely opposite impression to the real fact. And of course, there's a, as you said, there's a hard awful lot that we could talk about to do with that exaggeration and propaganda. Um, you said before the interview that you essentially agree with Vanessa Beely's position on what's been going on. So um, to boil that down, that will be that Syria has been essentially experiencing a proxy war um, waged by the West and its allies uh, using jihadists for the purposes of toppling Assad and gaining control over that country. So w would you essentially agree with that as a summary of what's been going on? Uh, basically, yes. I'm not denying that back in 2011, many Syrian people seeing what had happened across North Africa, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, thought that this was the moment to go out and demonstrate against a, a government which was quite heavy-handed mm -hmm. at times. No one says that the government were angels, but which government in the Middle East has ever been angelic? Um, but very, very quickly, foreign powers intervened to arm the rebels and to add fuel to the flames. And at various times uh, since, many, many outside powers have intervened uh, on the side of the rebels, pumping in literally billions of dollars in armaments and other uh, help, help with propaganda, maybe we'll come back to that, mm. and, and political help at the United Nations and elsewhere. And this includes some countries with very, very deep pockets. Poor Syria, one of, one of the poorest countries in, in the Middle East, has been set upon by a gang of uh, rogues in, in the Gulf, among the Gulf leadership, with very deep pockets in, indeed. And they have been ready to sustain renegade armies, mercenary armies, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Nusra, um, a whole rogues gallery of uh, jihadi militias, some of them bigger than the British army funded largely by the Gulf states and by the United States. It's, a, it's almost a miracle that the Syrian government has been able to survive. So you see the West and these Gulf states uh, working in tandem. Do you see that as an outworking of what uh, General Wesley Clark said several years ago about, you know, he was told by somebody at the Pentagon that the uh, Pentagon was going to take out seven countries in five years. And of course, Syria was on that list. Is that, is that in your understanding a, or an outworking of that plan? 
Uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I remember from my own time in, in the foreign office at the time of the I Iraq war, it was common knowledge that once the Americans had dealt with uh, Iraq, it was going to be Syria's turn next. Right. Well, indeed. Uh, it, it didn't happen quite so quickly mm. because the Americans got bogged down in Iraq and, and the Syrian government, uh, rather nefariously, helped to make sure they got bogged down precisely so that they would not come knocking on Damascus's door next. Right, yeah. Um, now, Professor Piers Robinson in the Media on Trial event actually mentioned a British embassy cable, which echoes what you've just been saying there. This is from, as was cited in the Chilcot Report, which reads, quote, the regime change hawks in Washington are arguing that a coalition put together for one purpose, uh, which is this is reaction to 9-11, uh, could be used to clear up other problems in the region. I thought that was an amazing quote to bring out. Uh, there were indeed other things on the list. And it goes on. Uh, there is now a, a new sheriff in the Middle East town, as it were, the self-styled global coalition for the elimination of ISIS. Now, this organization, which includes about 50 uh, countries, but is certainly not global, it doesn't include the countries that represent most of humanity, but anyway, a large coalition. And they have months and months ago virtually eliminated uh, ISIS from both Iraq and Syria. But uh, they seem intent on finding a new purpose for themselves by attacking the Syrian army and its allies. Our own revered RAF recently killed members of one of the militias supporting the government. What this has to do with eradicating ISIS, I really don't know. But it's, it's deliberate mission creep. The real purpose of this global coalition is now clearly not to remove the, the few remaining pockets of ISIS, but to prevent the Assad government from reasserting control over about 30% of the country, which is effectively in the control of the coalition. You mentioned that while you were British ambassador, you had a very definite sense that this sort of thing was going on. How did that actually affect your work? Did it make it extremely difficult? Well, conditions were different in that I, I was able to uh, feed back um, opinions and information to London, which I hoped would make them be cautious about joining in this enterprise of the Americans. Mm. And fortunately, this enterprise didn't get very far for the reason I mentioned earlier, that the Americans got bogged down in Iraq. But I frequently uh, did have to go to uh, make representations to the Syrians uh, to plead with them to stop the uh, flow of jihadis across their border into Iraq to fight the Americans. But I explained to London that we had only ourselves to blame because we had or the Americans had so blatantly advertised their intention to go after Assad once they'd gotten rid of Saddam. Mm. Um, I'm picking up vibes these days that the war in Syria looks like it might be nearing its end. But do you think there's a, a danger that the false flags and the hoaxes that we've we've seen involving alleged chemical weapons could be yet again uh, used as an excuse to fan the whole thing into flames? I did ask Vanessa that question, and she seems to think that that is a very real danger. Uh, yes, uh, there's no room for complacency just because uh, very recently several hundred of these uh, white helmets, these uh, so-called so-called uh, volunteer rescue workers have been removed from the theater of war. There are more of these white helmets who are actively preparing the next staged alleged chemical weapons incident in the province of Idlib right now. And this has very, very terrifying, um, terrifying prospect. Uh, because last time, you'll recall, with Duma in April, after that, the Western powers said, that'll teach Assad a lesson. And if he does it again, he'll see what he'll see. In other words, they have painted themselves into a corner. If there is another incident of some description, they have more or less made it inevitable that they will bomb Syria more heavily. And this time, I doubt 
that the Russians and the Iranians and the Syrians will just allow Syria to be treated as a punch bag for the West. There will be repercussions. So do you understand that then as being a, actually a policy as far as the West is concerned, actually, you know, to put your aircraft carrier in place and say, you know, we're ready for anything lock, stock and barrel and, and make those statements very clearly so that the jihadists can hear that in order to precipitate such an event? I mean, do you see that as a policy? I, yes, on the part of some elements anyway in the American and British governments. I don't think that is at all in President Trump's uh, calculations, but we saw last time how easy Trump is to manipulate. Uh, He saw a few pictures and launched his gunboats with their missiles. But I, I believe that there is a very deliberate intention to try to recoup lost uh, ground on on the battlefield by uh, deploying this, I won't call it diplomacy, this gunboat warfare, again, more heavily in the hope of decapitating the Syrian state. This is the last hope for the regime changes of striking a, a blow which would decapitate the Syrian state. They don't think through uh, the consequences any more than they did removing Saddam, what would follow. But these forces are intent on regime change. Yes, I remember in one of your interviews, you said something along those lines. You were saying it would be a really bad idea to get rid of Assad because of the chaos that would follow. And that was used against you in the interview because I think it was Emily, I can't think of her name now. I think this was on Newsnight. She said, oh, does that mean you think everything is okay in Syria or something like that? Which I thought was a remarkable response, really. Uh, Yes, one never gets a a fair hearing when I'm being interviewed with the mainstream media. I get the feeling that I'm being... Uh, interrogated by a press agent for the government and they will parrot the government position even even the the body language is is sneering (laughs) and dismissive and they clearly resent having to give airspace to an alternative narrative Well, I want to ask you about a few of your appearances in a minute, but I would also like to ask you about the media on trial event, which I did ask Vanessa Beely about. And she said that the event, in her opinion, was essentially a kind of mental space for people to gather, to hear critique, but um, also to share their own concerns about what's happening in the media and in the world. Is that your understanding of these events, that they are a kind of mental space for people? Uh, Yes, that's one of uh, their uh, functions. Um, I think uh, Mm. on another level, they're a manifestation of um, what you might call populism. Um, The same wave of sentiment that has uh, brought uh, about regime regime change of a sort in America and helped to bring on uh, Brexit helped to get Jeremy Corbyn, uh, elected leader of the Labour Party. Mm. This um, vague feeling of discontent with the uh, mainstream narratives, uh, the narratives of the, uh, the main parties. Uh, even in France, uh, Macron came from uh, nowhere outside the framework of the, the big parties. And in the same way, people uh, across Western democracies are showing a a disenchantment with what they're being spoon-fed by governments uh, echoed by their agents in the mainstream media. I think these talks, this series of panel meetings has uh, struck a a chord. Mm. Yes, so it is a manifestation of that sentiment. Uh, What do you hope to achieve through actually doing it. Um, I mean, there are hundreds of people involved, but not thousands, tens of thousands, millions. Well, what's the goal here? Uh, well, in fact, there are uh, millions, thanks to the uh, wonders of the internet. It wouldn't be do- worth doing it just for a few hundred uh, people in the actual audience. But these uh, events, uh, as you know yourself, are, are viewed mm. on YouTube and uh, other other sites by hundreds of thousands of, uh, of viewers. Mm. So the, the aim is to increase consciousness that the public are being spoon-fed um, false narratives by government mm. and their media acolytes. Mm. The mainstream media are definitely uh, alarmed by this. If you look at the viewing figures, uh, young people today in particular uh, don't get their news from the BBC or CNN 
No, they will turn first to internet sources. Mm. I don't know whether you saw John Cleese was on Newsnight uh, mm-hmm. several days ago. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. And uh, he was saying how very few people in the UK trust the mainstream media. And I thought that was delightful that he was there saying mm. that, actually. Exactly. I enjoyed that. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, okay. Um, I want to ask you more about your experiences of interacting with particularly the mainstream media. That's what we're talking about. I mean, essentially, we're talking about that because things like the BBC, the Channel 4 here in the UK, CNN in the US, these are the types of organizations that we've been brought up to trust. And so it seems to me they have a special burden of honesty and trustworthiness, and we need to hold them to account. So I'm not saying for a moment that therefore everything in the alternative media is great. It's, you know, it's just that there is this burden upon the mainstream media. So in holding them to account, let's discuss some more of your media appearances. The first thing I want to ask here is that obviously you are a person with considerable expertise on the, you know, the Arab speaking world. I would have thought that you'd be regularly invited onto news programs to give your expert opinion, particularly on Syria. Are you frequently invited to speak? Uh, no. Um, and um, I think it's uh, for a reason that the views I uh, advocate on aren't welcome on mainstream media. Only do I get invited when uh, the Syria crisis is red hot. And uh, the great thing is that even the mainstream channels are desperate to get talking heads, particularly ones that can say something interesting. Don't forget that they're Uh competing with each other. They are in the business, not of information, but infotainment. Right. Right. I go into this quite deliberately, partly to entertain and to get my messages across within the entertainment Mm. by being uh, pugnacious uh, and Mm. occasionally uh, humorous. It's it's part of a deliberate uh, tactic. Yes, you described yourself as a, a, a media tart in <laughs> one of your, your presentations. So yes, humorous, because yeah. I, I will go on any channel. I, I, I think I may have scraped the bottom of the barrel when I went on Radio Hertfordshire. Uh-huh. Um, but you see, these things tend to build up. Um, if you go on enough small radio shows, eventually the internet ensures that you get some uh, attention and then the other channels start pricking up their ears and eventually in in, in a red hot crisis such as we had last uh, April, you quickly go uh, viral, particularly is if, as I did, I, I graduated from being interviewed by Radio Hertfordshire to Radio Scotland, which is mm. not exactly one of the top radio <laughs> stations, but I, I managed to make it interesting. Oh, it was a wonderful interview. I'm going to ask you about that one, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And <laughs> yes. on the basis of that, that simply had to get me on to some of the TV shows. And from there, I graduated to American channels, um, uh-huh. where, where incidentally, I had a better more respectful audience than than, than uh, on uh, places like the BBC and Sky. Is this your interview with Tucker Carlson? Is that one? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. um, Fox News. Yes. Right. He he seems refreshingly open to to reason on various matters. I wonder how he gets away with it. Well, um, it's not that surprising because he is echoing views that were expressed by Trump, the candidate. Mm-hmm. Trump uh, made clear when he was a candidate that he wanted to withdraw the Ameri- a lot of the American military presence in the Middle East. Uh, he said no more unnecessary wars costing us trillions. This was uh, an important part of his appeal. And even to this day, he continues to show an intention to withdraw American forces from Syria. He's being constantly dragged back by deep state, the intelligence agencies, the Pentagon, but he keeps returning to the charge. This is what his core vote expected of him, to scale back American adventures in, in the Middle East. And and this is what Fox are happy to hear about. Okay, well, as you are frequently on the receiving end of propaganda techniques and aimed at you and, of course, at the audience, let's agree on a kind of working definition of propaganda. Now, Piers Robinson sort of boiled this down to coercion. I think this is a very 
helpful way of looking at it, that it's about propaganda is about trying to change thought and behavior, not through consent, via reason, persuasion, anything like that. It's essentially through force. It's by trying to coerce the audience. Do you agree with that? I mean, I know it's a simplification, but do you basically agree with that position on propaganda? Yeah, that's one way of uh, describing it. Um, it mm. Coercion, uh, certainly. Um, in, in diplomacy, uh, we talk about coercive diplomacy, often a euphemism for sanctions. <laughs> and in a, a similar technique is used in, in information warfare, because that, that's what's going on. Info warfare, mm. uh, very consciously on, on every side. Mm. There is a battle for control of the narrative. This is how I see it mainly. It's a battle for control of the narrative. Governments try to grab the narrative. Uh, usually mainstream media are content to act as government press agents, at least whenever it's an issue of national security. Uh, it's different when it's something uh, like the NHS. Uh, the, the media will be brave then and uh, criticize the, uh, the, the government. But on issues of national security, they snap to attention and, and just parrot the government narrative. And of course, on the other side, we are trying to grab that narrative back or puncture holes in it, as with the um, alleged Duma incident. Yes, I think you said in one of your presentations that the reaction of journalists to intelligence services seems to be more deferential than it is to politicians. Um, how have we got here? Uh, well, um, good question. I'm not sure how we've got here, but we certainly have witnessed the, uh, mm. the fawning of the British media on the head of British internal uh, security service uh, known as their MI5. Uh, Andrew Parker, uh, who has recently emerged from the shadows, come out from under his stone um, <laughs> and is, is now given airtime uh, whenever he wants it. A full speech of his was carried live by Sky TV. This doesn't even happen to people like Boris Johnson, this <laughs> reverential worshipping of the security agencies. It's a very dangerous trend. Mm. As if somehow they are quintessentially the nation or something like that. They, they couldn't possibly be corrupt. That seems to be the attitude that's there. Yes, the un underlying uh, assumption seems to be that these are the in incorruptibles representing the deep uh, nation. Governments come and go, mm. but the, uh, the military, and actually in the case of Britain and America, it's a symptom of our imperial and post-imperial behavior and, and hangovers. Right. In, in Britain, we still have this hankering after empire. We still haven't quite adjusted uh, to it, and so we preen ourselves on our James Bondish uh, uh, alleged competencies, on our spies, uh, we boast about having the best intelligence in, in the world. This is nonsense. Believe me, I used to be an insider. This is nonsense. Witness Iraq. This is all you have to remember. A reader of newspapers could have told you better about Iraq than the combined weight of our intelligence agencies. So does this connect with the notion of exceptionalism? I mean, we often hear about American exceptionalism, but would you say there's an, well, I could say an equal British exceptionalism or something comparable anyway? Yes, uh, we have uh, our own uh, historic uh, brand of uh, exceptionalism. Uh, uh, we have our potent symbols, uh, the, the monarchy, the military, empire. Yes, yeah, France is the same. They, they have their... Uh, version of ex exceptionalism, but uh, but I think America is unique because of the the moral tinge that right. they their belief is that America is the the only really moral country in in the world that they are an exemplar that they are the fount uh, of uh, freedom and democracy. 
um, we British <laughs> don't quite go to that extreme. Listeners will have to forgive me for repeating this, but I, I often do mention this. The uh, New Zealand philosopher Charles Pigden uh, wrote about conspiracy theories, and uh, in that he, he said how it's very easy for people to think that their own countries wouldn't do anything wrong, but it's very easy for them to think bad things of other countries. It's kind of a default position, mm. um, and mm. we all suffer from that. Um, yeah. Okay, so some of these TV appearances, you've mentioned some of them already. What I'd like to ask here is if you could draw upon those experiences to share with us any of the propaganda techniques that you've been on the receiving end of and how you've actually dealt with those. Um, now, I'm just going to mention a few here that Piers Robinson listed in his presentation. So outright lying, distortion, omission, um, misdirection, incentivization, and coercion. How many of those have you experienced, and uh, how have you reacted to them and coped with them? All of the above. Um, and I'd mention another, possibly my favorite, demonization. Ah. Demonization of uh, Assad, demonization of Russia, demonization of uh, Putin. Now, this may interest uh, any of the religiously minded listeners, mm. this word demonization. Uh, it's been so overused that we've forgotten what's included in that term, a demon, the devil. Mm. And uh, I think it's an example of how the religious, which we think has disappeared from our, our lives, been excluded, keeps coming in round the back door yes. and uh, reappears if only in our unguarded moments when we use words like demonization. But there is uh, the mainstream media try to create a, a whiff of the satanic around um, Assad in particular. He is portrayed revealingly as a, a monster or to quote President Trump as an animal. Uh, did you catch the uh, faint, very faint suggestion of the Garden of Eden yes, and the, yes. the distinction between uh, man and the animal kingdom? These uh, hints are, are just there in the background. So Assad and Putin are being demonized, and what we're seeing, according to the mainstream narratives, is a conflict between good and evil. No greys, it's all black and white. And did you notice how the white helmets, mm. uh, their helmets are white. Uh, they, these are the knights of the Holy Grail, the, the knights uh, on white steeds who come through to rescue innocent people. Mm. There are many um, religious echoes just below the surface of the, the situation as described yeah, in the mainstream media and as pictured in the popular imagination. Mm. Yeah, these symbols are very powerful and still with us. Um, I agree. Uh, of course, one of the things about the demon is that it is beyond redemption. And I think there's some mm. sense of that, isn't there? When, when these various people are being demonized, they are out and out evil, and they always will be, and everybody needs to think that about them. There's almost a kind of otherworldliness or an, mm. another, an other species yes. about such. Exactly. Uh, they, they are yeah. monsters. They are monsters. And uh, there's also this, uh, these suggestions of pollution. They are using poison. Uh, they are using uh, gas. Uh, they are polluting the wellsprings of our democratic system. Definitely there's something going on. Uh, here, something very deep, very uh, spiritual. That's fascinating. Oh, you mentioned, of course, about Saad being demonized. And I have to say that the interviews that I've seen with him, he, he just does not come over as a monster. <laughs> he comes over as a very rational person, um, yeah. very calm, considered. Um, now, of course... <sighs> I've said this before, um, that, that says nothing about his moral character, but he's not insane and he's not stupid. So certainly the whole picture of him being this great demon, this, this animal, etc., that does actually make no sense mm, to me. Yeah. Well, if Assad is, is a demon, uh, an animal, then we are too, because there's nothing that Assad has done that we, the West, have not done in places like Raqqa and Mosul. You know, have, have you seen the pictures of the devastation in those two uh, cities? Uh, even greater devastation than in Aleppo or any uh, other Syrian city that has been recovered by the Syrian government. 
um, in Raqqa, they're still pulling the bodies of babies out of the wreckage. And uh, the Americans are not giving any reconstruction assistance either. This is demonic. This is morally reprehensible. But it goes unmentioned, unremarked. Okay, well, let's turn then to the specifics of some of these interviews. I mean, you mentioned the Radio Scotland one, and I did want to discuss this with you because I think it was uh, really interesting the way, I don't know the chap's name, but he almost, well, he didn't actually use ridicule, but I thought he was going that way when he said something like, yeah, but what possible motives could the jihadists have had for you know doing a hoax? Which gave you a, a wonderful opportunity for a comeback where you said even a child can see what their motive would be, which I think was, was excellent. The, the key thing there was that I paused. Mm. There, there was a, <laughs> a pregnant silence. Mm. I couldn't believe my ears that he could be so stupid. <laughs> and uh, I think that was conveyed <laughs> with silence. A very brief silence. <laughs> yes, I'd forgotten that, but you're absolutely right. That's that's why that worked, that comeback. But uh, it was the... I, th- I don't know whether he was really thinking through what he was saying. I got the impression that he was jumping to that technique of, well, not quite ridicule, but you know what I mean? Where you say, oh, but how can you know, you know, what could possibly this, what could possibly that, virgin on the ridicule, yeah. which seemed to me not really a, a rational discussion yeah. there at that point. That yeah. sounded like a little bit of propaganda going on there, which didn't work. Um, absolutely. If, if I could jump to another BBC example, it wasn't with me, but with... Um Baroness Cox, a member of the House of Lords who uh, in April took a delegation to Syria, had meetings with Syrian dignitaries, including the Grand Mufti of Syria. Uh, She came back and was uh, interviewed by the uh, very important uh, Today program on radio. And the interviewer, uh, he went beyond uh, mockery he sneered at her, how could she possibly sit down to have tea with a mass murderer? Mm. Yes, I remember hearing that. Now, the, mm. the, the key thing here is that this claim that the Grand uh, Mufti was a murderer was based uh, on a flawed Amnesty International report, uh, information which came from a single biased uh, informant who said that the Mufti had signed execution warrants in in their thousands. Well, this is a total, total lie in the Syrian justice system, uh, which is completely secular. That's the whole point of the war. This is the forces of secularism against the forces of of bigotry. Uh, In the Syrian justice system, religious dignitaries don't have any role whatever in the administration of justice other than in the uh, Sharia courts. Mm. This was not Sharia. Uh, it was a fabrication. But, and on the basis of this, the BBC presenter, uh, and there must have been millions of listeners, felt that he could sneer at Baroness Cox, who had gone out there with the worthy intention of finding out facts of the situation and talking to Syrian leaders. Yes, indeed, I did hear that, and it it, it was uh, shameful, wasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely shameful. Um, I felt very sorry for her, actually, in, in that situation. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, this uh, sort of siding with government positions, it seems to be some journalists wear this as a kind of fur coat, you know, <laughs> that they're always protecting themselves and uh, cositing themselves with it. I mean, it came absolutely. up with that. If I could jump in yeah, yeah, with, sure. with another example, um, a Sky News uh, presenter at the time of the Duma crisis, Adam Bolton, one of the top presenters, was interviewing uh, me and I, I said, the British government haven't even produced a dodgy dossier this time. Mm. See, this is me trying to be entertaining as well as <laughs> right. informing. Uh, soundbite. Yes. Mm. Always think of a soundbite before or two before you go on to one of these things. Not even a dodgy dossier. And Adam Bolton took it upon himself to close the interview by saying, well, not yet, but I'm sure the government will produce a, a dossier before long. They didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but he t- took it on himself to act as the government press agent. Yeah. And you had a similar sort of thing with, now, is her name Naga Monchetti? Yes. This is on BBC Breakfast. Yes. Um, I did see that, and she seemed to take the government line on everything. 
it was like a constant appeal to authority against everything that you were saying, really. Uh, exactly. And she made sure introducing me to get off on for her the right foot by uh, implying that I was on the Syrian government payroll because I'm a co-chairman of the British Syrian Society, as we were discussing uh, earlier. She never says anything like that when she introduces people who really are paid spokesmen, uh, for example, former ambassadors to Washington, former ambassadors to Saudi Arabia. Uh, no, no, they, they are not introduced uh, in, in that way. So, I mean, this is one of the things that frequently baffles people. I find, um, you know, in, in my offline conversations with people on this kind of thing, that people find it very difficult to accept that journalists aren't telling the truth. <laughs> not, not just because we've, we've learned to trust certain news outlets, but because it, because it seems so unbelievable on the face of it that so many journalists should be lying, um, or, you know, being economical with the truth in various ways. But, uh, it seems to me that there are explanations for this. Um, I'm going to ask you what you think. Of the kind of thing that comes to my mind is the sort of thing that Noam Chomsky has said, where journalists are enculturated in a, in a certain way of thinking. If they didn't think the right thoughts, they wouldn't be in, in that job. Another would be that there are people who are paid off or even blackmailed amongst journalists and, and are therefore functioning as intelligence assets. And Maybe you can think of other things. What would you say are the, the main driving forces behind journalists behaving in these in these ways where, where they should really be holding government and indeed the deep state to account uh, yes I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I have the answer uh, and there are probably several answers but yeah. part of it is simply down to ideology these are people who are recruited on the basis that they have a certain mindset a certain cast of mind, uh, they tend to be liberal interventionists, the kind of people who read The Guardian, watch the, the BBC, get all their news from those uh, kind of outlets, uh, were supporters of the Iraq war, who sympathize with uh, Tony Blair, people like David Miliband, um, the liberal interventionist culture. They generally come from that background. Mm. There are very, very few uh, mavericks uh, among mainstream journalists. You don't get to be a mainstream <laughs> journalist if you have a maverick cast of mind. Mm. They are conformists who will go along with prevailing narratives. It's different with some domestic policies, uh, but you don't have to be mm. brave to criticize a government because it's not spending enough on the NHS or, yeah. or because it's making a mess of the Brexit negotiations. That doesn't require moral courage. Mm. Taking a different line from the government on an issue of security, a Middle East war, that would have spared us the Iraq war mm. if the BBC and others had been of a more critical mindset. So the mainstream media is like a machine and you want good cogs for the functioning of the machine, essentially. Exactly. You don't get to be part of it mm -hmm. unless you, you fit. Yeah. But do you think there is an element of intelligence assets within the media who have a controlling influence? I, I don't, don't think they even find that necessary. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because... Uh, yeah. There is so much compliance already. Um, the closest it gets is with the defense correspondence, a pet hate of mine, almost to a man. Defense and security correspondence. They don't get free lunches in nice hotels if they don't tow the government line. Um, and they will dutifully parrot the government line. Uh, they really are acting as government press agents. Um, you, you'll never hear a defense correspondent saying that the latest uh, harumphing general complaining about not enough money being spent on aircraft carriers might be wrong. No, no, no. They, they will always go along with yet more ramping up more military, uh, ramping up more foreign wars. Uh, there isn't a single peacemonger among them. Well, I wanted to ask you an, uh, another question, kind of an extended notion of propaganda. And this comes out of something that was said at the Media on Trial event, that the very notion of the war on terror is a propaganda construct. 
which I thought was really interesting. It's like a soundbite that bypasses our reason and manipulates the way we think and feel. It appeals to fear. Um, and when I was thinking about this, I, I realized there were a lot of other phrases as well that seem to possibly be propaganda constructs. And I thought of responsibility to protect the white helmets, international community, weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons, democracy. Mm. If these are words we're so familiar with. Mm. We think we know exactly what they mean, but the, mm. the way they're used can be very propagandistic. Even British values, rule of law, yeah. all these sorts of things. I, I can hear you saying yes in the background. So mm. presumably you agree they can be used mm. in an extremely propagandistic way. Very much so. Uh, a recent favourite um, has been rules-based system. Uh, the, the British government has become, in the last year or, or two, very fond of this uh, phrase, uh, rules. The, the, the Russians are not uh, respecting rules-based systems. They're undermining, for example, the rules-based system of, of chemical uh, weapons. <laughs> yeah. Now, in years gone by, governments would talk about international law. Mm -hmm. Ah, Trouble is that we have intervened illegally in so many places in the Middle East that we are now afraid to invoke international law because we are, are ourselves scoff laws, outlaws, uh, breakers of international law. That, that is a dangerous concept to invoke. But a rules-based system, when we create the rules, not the law, but we set the rules, is much more convenient for, for government. And when, when we don't like uh, what we've created, well, we just change the rules. Uh, so Trump, for example, can tear up the rules-based system, which was instituted with the uh, nuclear agreement with Iran. It's no longer convenient. So that rule gets tossed out of the window. And uh, recently, the British government instituted a change in the rules for the OPCW, the chemical weapons inspectors, because it was more convenient. Uh, we wanted them to be able to point the finger based on evidence that we, of course, would provide. Uh, these are the rules that we prefer. So rules-based systems, watch out for that one. It trips off the lips of government spokesmen with alarming uh, ease. Yes, indeed. Um, would you agree that one of the major ways in which propaganda works is just through brute attrition? So you get constant repetition of shallow news reports, endlessly repeating the same kind of messages. It just sticks in people's minds, even if certain elements of those stories actually get debunked along the way. It doesn't really matter because the main narrative is established and reinforced just by repetition. Uh, a case in point, the British government very recently uh, released a, a statement about the white helmets, how they were being exfiltrated from Syria and brought to Britain. And uh, seven times in a very short statement, the word volunteers was used to describe this organization, which is composed of jihadi auxiliaries, but by calling them volunteers repeatedly. There was no need, actually, to keep repeating it, but they know the power of repetition. If you repeat something, often enough it will... Go Goebbels, uh, of course, was the first to make this well, well, a well-known principle of propaganda, but advertisers know the same. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Uh, volunteer, volunteer, volunteer. And, of course, this is how the mainstream media report the white helmets. I want to ask you one last question here, and this is a, a, a tricky one to ask. Um, one of the things I notice in discussing many of these events, that there's a very restricted sphere of discourse because there's a social taboo about saying certain things. For one example, in this whole Novichok business, it was clearly not acceptable to mention that, say, you know, Porton Down might have had nefarious input into those events, despite the fact that it was just down the road and could actually produce this stuff. That, that's not acceptable to mention. Um, and therefore, it didn't get into the equation when people were deciding who might have been responsible for this. And it seemed to me that this was, see, I don't know whether one should understand this as a deliberate restricting of the sphere of discourse or not. I mean, it certainly is restricted and therefore people are reaching illogical conclusions because of that. Do you see it as deliberately restricted in order to manipulate people's reasoning? 
Yes, I, I'm, I'm sure that the, the government uh, propaganda machine has been working overtime on trying to narrow down the channels for public thinking about this incident, on which I have absolutely no inside information. Mm. I speak uh, with no more knowledge than the average uh, listener. But uh, the government appeared to be at pains to exclude any possibility of uh, another explanation, such as an Eastern European power, such as Ukraine, which might want to frame Russia, mm. did it. Mm -hmm. I've never seen the government address this hypothesis, even to dismiss it. No. And I suspect it's because they would find it very difficult to do so. Yeah. So the government are trying to narrow the options for the public to think about this issue. But it appears to be backfiring from what I can see. Um, <laughs> the conspiracy uh, theories are, are running rife. And every time the government come up with some new tidbit of information, uh, it just uh, unleashes another round of conspiracy theorizing. Mm -hmm. Yes, I take your point about this, but it's not just the government, is it? Because the opposition is not able to think outside this box either. There's a, there is this taboo, isn't there? You're allowed to say so many things, but you're not allowed to go into territory that is unacceptable. Well, the the Labour opposition, uh, of course, has two components. The parliamentary Labour Party, uh, the majority of whom are liberal interventionists, uh, sympathizers with the Blair extreme centrism, who are, these people are very divorced from the Labour Party membership. Uh, the outcome is that the leadership is almost paralyzed, unable to take a strong position on hardly anything. Yeah. And particularly on issues touching national security, where Labour will, all, will always be vulnerable to accusations that they're selling the, the country short on national security or, or defence spending. Mm. Um, so they're constantly on the back foot. And, and I, I don't see uh, that changing anytime soon, sadly. Yeah. Okay, well, the last thing I want to ask you about then is about us. I mean, how can we avoid the effects of propaganda on our own consciousnesses? Um, you know, speaking from your own experience, how you've dealt with it, what advice would you give to us? Obviously, we're going to be affected by it to some extent, but what can we do to limit the effects of it as much as possible? Um, well, be, be aware that you're being manipulated I'm trying to manipulate the, the listeners uh, right now. Uh, we do it instinctively. Um, we can't help it. We try to shape our discourse to influence people. Um, but be aware that governments uh, do this. Uh, they pay huge amounts to public relations companies and to press departments to frame our thinking. And a lot of it is down to framing, to narrow the options to permit only one mm. narrative about a given mm. event. Just be aware of these techniques yes. and as much of what is not said as what is said, the questions which go unasked. Okay, and finally, a related question. It's okay for us then to think in our own minds what is going on here and uh, to think critically, etc. But how do we talk about these kinds of concerns with other people? This is another thing that I said to Vanessa, that I'm very aware that people are thinking outside the box about this kind of thing. You just go to even mainstream publications and look at the comments there, and there are lots of dissenting voices. You know, I can't believe this is a total nonsense, etc. And yet... My experience is in everyday life that people do not talk about these kinds of concerns. And I think that's very serious. Um, you are talking about it openly in all sorts of contexts. What advice would you have for us in the just the general everyday social interactions to express our concerns about the propaganda that's going on? Mm. Because there are pressures, aren't there, for us? To, you know, we'll be called a conspiracy theorist, a nutcase, and all that sort of thing. Oh yes. How do we cope with it? Yeah, I just mm. just say to people, um, don't be cowed, don't be frightened. You will probably, if you voice an opinion, an unorthodox opinion, you'll be surprised at how often other members of the public will agree with you. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I find this uh, constantly. Hmm. People I would never have expected to agree with me, um, they do. 
some disagree, but more often than not, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. And a lot, an increasing number of people simply will not just go along uh, uh, with the mainstream narratives, with the mainstream media. They are moving away from them in droves and they're going to their computers and their tablets and their smartphones and turning to alternative sources. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so essentially you are calling for people to be brave. <laughs> so people may actually agree with you when you say what you really believe. Exactly. Yeah, good advice. I need to take that advice myself because very often I, I wimp out. I mean, I can be behind the microphone here, but that's a different matter. <laughs> but in my everyday life, I tend to wimp out. So I will take your advice, Peter Ford. Thank you ever so much for coming on the program. It's been a delight to speak to you. Very interesting and a privilege to speak to you as well. And uh, let me thank you for the work that you do in the media and for your your honesty and your bravery in speaking truth to these people who themselves should really be holding power to account and very often are not so thank you for coming on the show and uh, for you. the work that you do thank you very much uh, julian been a pleasure <laughs>